Good morning, friends. For my last sermon at the Bentonville Church of Christ, I wanted to preach from one of my favorite chapters of Scripture. So today we're in John chapter 4. If I had one chapter to preach from for the rest of my life, I think it would be John chapter 4. This chapter has everything in it. It has uh, Jesus in a quintessential story. Maybe the most Jesus story of all of the Gospels, in a sense. Uh, Just think about what's going on in this chapter. Jesus is on his way from Judea, near Jerusalem, where he was born, uh, out in Bethlehem. And he's on his way up to Galilee, where he lived for all of his childhood and teenage years. So Jesus is on a trip between the place where he's born and where later he'll die. Key moments in his life occur in Judea and to the place where he does most of his living and most of his ministry. Jesus is on a trip uh, through the borderland of Samaria, which for the Jews is neither Galilee, second-rate Jewish territory, or Judea, first-rate Jewish territory. It's none of the above. It's third or fourth-rate territory with people who follow God, but with their own ways of worship, their own Bible, their own idea of where worship should take place instead of in Jerusalem. And so there's this conflict for the Jews. These are like half-breeds or half-believers, and they despise them. Jesus uses Samaritans in provocative ways to tell stories about how the kingdom of God shows up in unexpected places. So he he makes the Samaritan the true neighbor on the road whenever this man is near death in a ditch. And he makes the Samaritan the grateful leper who is healed and goes back to say thank you. You know, in in Jesus' ministry, both in real life and in his storytelling, the Samaritans show up in surprising ways with bold faith and bold requests. And here's Jesus moving through this borderland from from the place of his birth and death to the place of his living and his friendships and most of his ministry. And he passes through this frontier, this borderland. And the woman that he meets in John chapter 4, she lives in a borderland of her own. She's had all these men in her life. And so most people think that she probably is looked down on as a sinner. Maybe she has been at fault or at blame for all of these broken marriages. Other people think she's been bereaved over and over and over. And whichever the case is, this woman is is living in the borderland of a life that might as well be death. She has such sorrow in her life and such pain, and she seems to be outcast in a way. And even though people listen to her and respond when she gives this witness about Jesus, she is alone at the well at the beginning of the story. And so almost everyone can see that this woman is living in this borderland. She's like the walking dead And Jesus comes through the borderland of Samaria and into the borderland of this woman's life. And he does typical Jesus things, the unexpected. He meets people where they're at. And it leads to this wild conversion of a whole Samaritan town. Who ever heard of such a thing? What Jew would have expected such a thing? And so this story is a quintessential Jesus story. And it's got everything in it. Think about what is in the story. There's baptism. 
and there's discipleship. There is the pressure from the Pharisees, Jesus' opponents, that he moves out of Judea because of this pressure. There is a rich insight into the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Because at the middle of the day, at the hottest point, he sits down to rest by a well and asks for a drink of water. His disciples go into town to buy food. Jesus is fully present in his human form in this story with his human needs on display. And yet at the same time, there is this rich, divine Jesus in the story with his knowledge, perfect knowledge of the woman's life and his foreknowledge of the ministry to take place in this town. And the fact that he makes his boldest statements in this story about being the Messiah and having the divine image when he uses the name of God, I am, echoing God's revelation to Moses in the Exodus story as he reveals himself to this woman. And so Jesus in this story is human and divine and we see evangelism take place. There's great spiritual metaphors about food and drink. And Jesus, with this woman and the Samaritans, does a typical Jesus thing where he makes odd friends, unusual friends. And there are the agrarian metaphors and similes and stories of Jesus where he talks about the harvest and where he talks about uh, sowing and reaping. Jesus's typical language where he identifies with country people and farmers and villagers more than city elites. In this story, we see real belief, real conversion that happens by the most unlikely converts, and we see confused disciples. They are just as real in being Jesus's people, but they're confused and uncertain about this mission. We see this rich Trinitarian theology in the story where the Father and the Son and the Spirit all take part in their own way in converting this woman in her town. And we see uh, in Jesus the display, the revelation, if you will, revealing how God feels about any person who might happen by a random rest stop in the middle of the day in the middle of the heat, with some work and labor to do. And God, when he meets them at the rest stop, cares about their life. This story is quintessential Jesus all the way down. We see that real food is to do God's will and his work, and that real drink is the life of the Spirit. It just doesn't get much better than this chapter. Jesus' life and his death and his new life are all reflected in this story as Jesus talks about living water. So today I want to take one angle into this chapter of, of many, many ways that you could approach this beautiful, deep chapter. And I want to talk about living water. And so today we're going to look at this through three headings, just a few minutes under each one. A drink for Jesus, a drink from Jesus, and the drink of Jesus. A drink for Jesus. This is a tongue twister. Let's see if you can keep up. A drink for Jesus. A drink from Jesus. And the drink of Jesus. Let's start by talking about a drink for Jesus. When Jesus comes to this well, and he sits in the middle of the day in the heat, and the woman comes up, he says um, something that might be very normal to hear at a well. 
Uh, and yet at the same time in the story, it's startling. And you know the reasons that it's startling. You, people have told you, I'm sure, in your life that it's startling that Jesus talks to a Samaritan woman uh, by himself without other people around. All of those all of those factors make this unusual and unlikely and strange, but the request itself is pretty human and very normal. Will you give me a drink? It is one of the most <laughs> uh, simple, easy requests that any human could ask of another human, even though the social situation makes this a, an unusual and maybe even an awkward request. But it's a simple request. It is the thing that most restaurants don't even charge you for, at least in America. Water to drink. You want a soda, you want a coffee, they'll charge you several dollars each, but you want water, it comes free, at least here. And most restaurants, if you're going through the drive-thru, they don't charge you for the cup or the ice or whatever, they just give you water. Some of them, some of them try to charge you for the cup. Usually this is just free. It doesn't get much more of a simple request than this. Clean water is... Is, is like a right for people in our nation when people are getting water from their city and it, and it isn't clean it's got something in it contaminants or there's lead in it or something people people sue the city there's there's acts of local governments or congress to fix this and to correct it people need water they have a right to access clean water it's just one of these basic things of life that when people don't have it we want to give it when people don't have easy access to water in Africa, uh, Christians, non-Christians, almost anybody in the Western world is happy to contribute some money to build fresh water wells. It's the kind of thing that when someone asks, could I please have water, we want to say yes. It's like a basic request. And so Jesus opens this door of conversation with the most beautifully simple request. Will you give me a drink. Will you give me a drink? And the woman has an opportunity to respond. You know, she could just say yes. She could say nothing at all. Just put the bucket on the rope, lower it in, wind it back up, pour some water out for Jesus, dip some out of the bucket for him. She doesn't even have to speak. She could just say no. She could just say, you have nothing to do with me. I have nothing to do with you. No. But instead, she asks a great question. She says, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Now, the woman gets this right, even though in a strange way she may not see it yet. That to give a drink uh, to Jesus, when Jesus asks for this drink, it, it's a... It's actually a request that any person can't fulfill. Sure, she can give him a cup of water. And Jesus will say that anyone who gives a cup of cold water to someone else in his name will not fail to receive their reward. There's, there is something literal she could do. She could give him the water, like she could give water to any other human person in need. But she actually can't give Jesus the drink he needs. And not the drink that he's talking about. So she's right to pause and to hesitate and to say, how can you ask me for that? Although maybe her reasons are a little off. She's thinking in human terms that our ethnic identities, our gender identities, prevent this from being an easy request to fulfill. Why would you ask for this? How could you ask for this? But 
The truth is, is that she cannot give the drink for Jesus. She cannot give him the kind of drink that he can give. The drink that is Jesus' metaphor for the Holy Spirit. She can't even give him the drink that he will later drink from the cup. The cup of God's wrath against sin in the world. That sin must be dealt with. That it must be broken. Its power must be broken over human hearts. That keeps us a captive and a slave to sin. That someone must drink the cup in order to deal with our slavery to sin. She, she can't give him any of the drinks that Jesus would actually require. And so she is right to hesitate and to say, how can you ask me for a drink for Jesus? And so Jesus quickly turns tables on her and offers a drink from himself, a drink from Jesus for her. And this is the, this is the first drink in the Gospel of John that comes from Jesus for the healing of, of people. Maybe you could say this is the second drink he makes of the wine at Cana, but really that's symbolic of the second drink that will come later. This drink here, this is the fresh living water drink from Jesus that is the life of the Spirit. Look at what Jesus says. When she hesitates, she pauses. This doesn't seem right. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus acknowledges that the woman is right to hesitate to fulfill his request. Give a drink to Jesus. You know, who, who can do that? And so he offers a drink from himself to her, living water. Now this, in, in, their, in their time, in their language, this is not... Um, this isn't like being overly cute. This isn't a, a spiritual metaphor that um, would, would be just obvious at first hearing that, oh, he's getting spiritual on us, although he is. What this would sound like in the language of the day to the woman in this cultural setting would just be that Jesus is offering her fresh water, running water. Living water is just their way of saying water that is running and it's moving. So as opposed to still water, it's living water. And, you know, people in the ancient world maybe paid more attention to this than we might right now because we don't often see where our water comes from. Unless, again, there's problems in the city water service or we have a well collapse on our rural property, we don't often pay much attention to where the water comes from. It comes up through the tap when we want it turned on or when we want it turned off and and we don't think about where it comes from. But in the ancient world, if you were looking for water and you had still water and you had living water and they were a reasonable distance, they were reasonably the same distance away, you would go to the living water, to the running water. Why? Well, because it's washing impurities downstream. It is not becoming stagnant. The still water might be collecting uh, different contaminants. It might be growing different things in it. It might make you sick. Still water has a potential to become, um, you know, contaminated. And running water, living water is fresher and cleaner. And so we see this show up in the early Christian faith after even the New Testament was written. So there's an early Christian document called the Didache in which baptism is described and how it was practiced in the first few hundred years 
of the church, and they talk about if living water is available, that is where you should baptize people. And it symbolizes a clean, pure, fresh washing that washes uh, sins and impurities away as opposed to still water that isn't such a strong symbol of health. And so if still water is all you have, that's fine for baptism, but living water was preferred. So we see that Christians thought in this way because this is the way ancients thought. And, and Jesus offers to the woman something that would make a lot of sense. She's pulling water up from a well, which would have the potential to become contaminated or stagnant over living water, over a stream of water. And Jesus says to her, if you had asked me for a drink, I would have given you living water. And so then she does ask. Then she does ask for this drink from Jesus. She said, but you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. So where can you get this living water? I know that you're not talking about the well. because First of all, it's not living water. And you don't even have a bucket, you don't have tackle, you don't have anything here to draw water up with. So what are you talking about, living water? Are you greater than Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself and, and watered his flocks and his herds and his sons drank from it and so on? And then Jesus will explain more clearly, now we see the spirit metaphor that he's coming to. He explains to her what he means by a drink from Jesus. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. That's the well water. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And this is the drink from Jesus that is offered. That Jesus offers us the life of the Spirit. A kind of inner resource that is always fresh and new, that is alive. And here's the thing about the Spirit that Jesus offers. It is not still. It is not stagnant. It's not always in the same place. When you come to a pond over and over and over again, it's as if it's the same pond. You know, it, technically water evaporates and water runs in and water runs out, but it has the same appearance over time. I mean, not, not exactly, but you get the idea. The pond is still. But when you come to a river, there's a sense that you never come to the same river twice because what is washing downstream is traveling far away. And so the water that was here with you five minutes ago or 30 minutes ago or a week ago or a year ago is now washed downriver to another town or state or out into the ocean itself and it's become part of the water cycle. It has moved on from here and this river in the same place is never the same river twice. So is the life of the Spirit, that it's constantly on the move. It's constantly in flux and in change. We don't come to the Holy Spirit of God on our own terms, as if his geography is always the same, and we come to him when we want a little bit of refreshment. The Spirit is on the move. The water is always living. He is always leading. He's always guiding. He's always going. And for us to be drinking deeply of the life of the Spirit is to be on the move with God and to be experiencing this life with him in all of its fresh variations day after day as he leads us and as he guides us. Where he is at is living water. And Jesus promises this woman that the spirit could come alive inside of her. She could have the well bubbling up from within. She could have a life of being dependent on the spirit of God. 
of being in communion with the Spirit of God, of being in touch with the Spirit of God. He's promising her something that is a greater resource than anything anyone else has ever offered her. She's lived in the borderlands for a long while now. You know, borderlands, deserts and wastelands, are places that we think of where we're far from basic needs. You get out into the desert and you might be far from fresh water or from, from a good well. And Jesus is promising her, this woman who is living between life and death with all of these men in her life and probably disparaging remarks from the villagers and so on, a source of life inside that can transform from the inside out so that instead of appearing alive on the outside but being dead on the inside, she can appear alive on the outside and be more alive on the inside. Jesus is offering her a beautiful drink. Do you understand this is what Jesus is offering to you and to me? That he, when he comes to us and he asks us this, this piercing question, do you have a drink for me? That Jesus is probing us, probing our hearts, testing our hearts to see. When Jesus asks for something for me, would I then be willing to say, I don't really have anything that I could give you. What could I give to the God of the universe? What could I give to the king above all authorities and all powers and all dominions? What could I give to the resurrected Lord whom death has no power over? What do I have to give to him? And Jesus then would say to us, exactly, exactly, I have a drink to give to you. And I want to give it to you, and I want you to understand that you can do nothing for me. You have nothing for me. I have something for you. For us to be in communion, it is the drink, not for Jesus, but the drink from Jesus that comes to you. And the woman seems to get it. Now, they have some more conversation. They have conversation about her her um, forays into love relationships. They have conversation about where God should be worshipped and how God should be worshipped when God talks about the Father being worshipped in spirit and in truth. And again, there's so much in this story, but we can't go to all of that today. For today, we just want to, I guess, sit and look at this fact that Jesus asked the woman, will you give me a drink? And she knows that she can't. And he says, that's right, I have a drink for you. And Jesus offers the same to you. And this is why I wanted this to be my last sermon here. Because we, we have much to do for Jesus, much work to do for Jesus, that is food to us. This is how Jesus uh, wraps up this incident with his disciples. He says down in verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. So working for Jesus, working for God, offering something to Jesus is a beautiful thing. It's like food. It is like nourishment for our day. Being able to give back to Jesus, being able to serve him is like, like rich, sustaining food. And yet it is not the first step. It is never the first step in establishing a relationship with him. The first step is always, would you give me a drink? Ah, you can't, can you? I have a drink for you. I have one for you. Will you receive it? And this woman receives it gladly. After their further discussion, she goes off to the village and she says to them, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. What a ridiculous evangelistic strategy. Come see a man who will out all your secrets. 
Boy, that does that make you feel safe? Come see a man who will open all your closets and show the world the skeletons inside. Does that make you feel safe? Is this a good invitation? Come see a man who knows everything, and he'll say it out loud in front of your friends. This does not seem to be the best evangelistic strategy, but it works. The people flood out of the city. They come to Jesus. They see him for themselves. They, too, receive the drink of living water from Jesus, and they believe. And it says here in the text, it says that they, um, they then say that we no longer believe because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Why does her testimony work? Well, because she has drunk the living water, because she has taken it in and the spirit is causing this well of water to spring up from inside of her so that her testimony, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. It's not a, it's not a, a fear-based appeal to try to leverage people into obeying God. It's not smacking them over the head with fire and brimstone messages or condemning them. This is a message that says, there is somebody who knows everything about you, every hair on your head, every second of your life, every day is written in his book before one of them came to be. And with him, I have been safer than I have ever been with any man in my life. With him, I'm not in the borderlands. With him, I am at home. With him, I'm not out in the wilderness anymore. With him, I am I'm safe. With him, I'm covered. With him, I have, I have fresh water, not just near me, but inside of my heart. My very life source is now coming from within, from his spirit, not from without, from what people say or people think or how my life has gone or how I've behaved. My life source is now from within. What a great resource. And so she says to them, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And, and we have to believe that she said it in a way that communicated to them, and I am safer than I've ever been before. What a testimony. So we have a drink for Jesus, the one that he asks for, that we cannot fulfill. And he uses this to show us that we really have nothing to offer. And we have a drink from Jesus, the one that we need, that he gives and he offers the life-giving spirit. So why would we say that there is a drink of Jesus? That there is the drink of Jesus? Well, for a couple of reasons. Remember that at Cana, when Jesus turned water to wine, it was a sign of his coming glory. And it was a sign probably for several reasons or with several layers. Because God throws feasts and there is a feast coming at the end of the age that Jesus invites you to sit down at table and to feast with him. That's a sign. But it's also a sign because a cup of wine in the story of the Bible represents something that has been purchased at great cost. So when the Israelites are um, uh, experience the exodus from Egypt and God causes his plagues to fall on the Egyptians and they drink a cup of wine uh, at table. They remember their former slavery and what God did and how he intervened and what it cost those who opposed God for them to be set free from that slavery. When Jesus then holds up a cup at the Passover celebration at the end of his life and institutes a new covenant. He says, it's in my blood, and he gives this cup 
to his disciples to drink. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. He's foreshadowing the great cost that God will pay to set people free from their slavery, not to Egypt, but to sin and the destruction of death on the inside. This is the cup, the drink of Jesus. The one that he gives to you, because, and he has the right to give to you because he drank it himself first. Because he allows the plagues of Egypt to fall on him, to set not only Israelites free, but Egyptians free. Because he drinks the cup of the new covenant and gives it to you so that the wrath against sin would fall on him and not on you and not on me and not on Samaritans and not on Romans and not on Greeks, but on Jesus himself. So just a little while later in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is experiencing the crucifixion, he is, he is hanging on the cross and he is dying. And he is symbolically drinking the cup, the cup of his new covenant. While he's on the cross, he says this, John 19, verse 28, Knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Jesus sat down at the well one day in the middle of the heat at noon, and he saw this woman coming. This woman whose life was drying up and withering from the inside. And what does Jesus say to her? He doesn't say, do you know what you need? You really need the Holy Spirit in your life. Do you know what you need? You really need God in your life. Do you know what you need? No, Jesus says, would you give me a drink? And so he opens the windows of her mind and he opens the door to her heart so that she can think about, what would I have to give to this man? And then he can say, I have a drink for you. And on the cross, Jesus says, I am thirsty. Again, his human body wearing out under the scorching sun, hanging out alone in the borderlands between life and death where he meets you and me. And he says, I am thirsty. And so in the story, someone tries to give him a drink. A jar of wine vinegar was there. They soaked a sponge in it. They put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. And when he had received this drink, Jesus said, it is finished. He drinks the cup, the bitter cup, represented in this, in this wine vinegar of the wrath against sin. And he gives up his life. He says, it is finished. In the borderland between heaven and earth hanging on a cross, in the borderland between life and death, between sin and righteousness, between the living water and the poisoned well, Jesus thirsts. And he drinks deeply, of the bitter drink to offer the fresh water to you and to me and he offers it to you still and he offers it to us when we come to him for our conversion at the beginning of our walk with him but he offers it to us every single day you know if you're thirsty right now that well of the spirit is still there and available we just reach out ask for jesus to give you the living water and see if he is not willing. Reach out and ask for Jesus. 
to give you the springs of life on the inside, even if your outer life is decaying and falling away and see if he doesn't respond. Because this is what he came to do, to offer himself to be thirsty so that your thirst could be quenched, to offer himself in the borderlands, to bring you back home into the realm of life and to rescue you from death. May this Jesus ever be the guide of the Bentonville Church of Christ. And may his life-giving spirit renew and refresh the ministries here every day and week and month and year. You know that uh, our blessings fall on you. That we pray for you. And we know that you will pray for God's blessings to rest on us as well. And so, in a mutual love for Jesus and his spirit and our Father in heaven, uh, we, we offer you that blessing from Jenna and from Ari and from me. May God be with you all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus experienced thirst so that he could talk to us about drink. That he asked us for a drink so that he could open the door of conversation to help us see that we really have nothing to give him that we really need from him. And we thank you that when, when the drink is not something that we could even receive, um, that it's not something that we could even receive because we were held slaves under sin, because it was, um, it was kept from us by our own chains and our own bondage, that Jesus broke the power of sin in our life by drinking the bitter drink to offer us the fresh and life-giving spirit. We pray that we would be obedient and receptive of that gift, that we would live and walk in your spirit, that we would be refreshed and renewed through the waters of baptism and through the baptism of the spirit in our hearts and in our lives that constantly welcomes us and moves us forward in the fresh life of God day after day. We pray that this blessing would rest on this church and that you would do great things here and that what you've done here so far is only just the beginning. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and together we say, Amen.